Omnipresent God, Eternal Father, we thank you that wherever we're going, you've already been there. And wherever we are, you are always with us. So, Lord, we we choose not to take the wings of dawn to flee from you, but rather, Lord, we would exult in the presence of the God who loves us, who so loved the world that you sent your only Son so that we might believe in you and not perish because you didn't want us to perish, but to have eternal life. And as your people, Lord, we receive your life as a gift. And we pray, Lord, today that you would shed light on our lives on our words and our thoughts and our attitudes, that you would shed your light so that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, so that we might become like Christ, so that the world might see you in us, is our strong prayer. In Christ's name, amen. What a beautiful song, Laverne. Thank you for leading us in worship. Years ago, a large statue was... uh, built high in the Andes Mountains on the border between Argentina and Chile, called Christ of the Andes. Maybe you've seen it, you could Google it um, on the internet and see this statue that symbolizes a pledge between two countries. As long as the statue of Christ stands, there will be peace between our countries. It's a beautiful idea. Shortly after the statue was uh, Placed there, the Chileans began to protest, though, that they had been slighted because, unfortunately, the back of Jesus Christ is to Chile and the face toward Argentina. And this was a a huge problem among the Chileans. It was a sort of uproar until an editorial that that was written by a Chilean newspaper saved the day. Uh, This newspaperman wrote out and simply said, the people of Argentina need more watching over than the Chileans. Well, Paul knew that the Philippians needed a lot of watching over. So he wrote to them about Christ. And the good news is that you and I who need a lot of watching over, God's answer is better than a statue. Better than just sending us some image of Jesus to which we could look and bow down. It's not that God sent a statue between us to break down the barrier of hostility between groups of people. But rather, God came himself. Jesus himself came among us and when we look to him and realize that he is with us, that wherever we are, he is there, we discover the strength and the accountability to continue to grow and to become and to change until we become like Christ so that when people see Christ in us, they will see the end of hostility And the beginning of relationship with a God who loves them. Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I want to read verses 12 to 18. You know this comes on the heels of one of the great passages of Scripture in all the New Testament. The great servant song that describes Jesus. And after he tells us that God has given Jesus the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He speaks these words. Would you stand with me? In view of the great glory of God, our father, he says in verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will 
and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. They were fussing. There's no other way to describe it. The church at Philippi, for all of its strengths, a church that gave Paul great joy. They loved Paul. Paul loved them. He tells them at the beginning of the letter, I love you and there's not a thing you can do about it. And they love him. But what he really wants is for them to love each other. So he writes to a church in which two leaders in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, have come at odds with each other and he wants them to get along and he calls upon the one we believe is the pastor and says, loyal yoke fellows, Isagus, would you, would you come alongside these two ladies and help them find community and unity in Christ? But before he names names, he sort of lays a theological foundation and says, if you have any comfort in Christ, any encouragement, if there's any, any love that you find, in Jesus, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having, he says, the mind of Christ. What mind is that? The mind that is not concerned about its own interests first, but the interests of others first. And so he shows them this picture of Jesus who was equal with God, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, but he didn't grasp that. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He became a human being and died the ignominious death of a criminal on a cross So that God would see his sacrifice and forgive us of our sins and then give Jesus the name that is above every name, that at his name every knee should bow and every tongue confess. In heaven and in earth, everybody knows Jesus is Lord. And Paul knew that we know that Jesus is Lord and that we would bow our knees and we would confess with our tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord. But he also wanted us to see That he not only did that as an example to us, as a savior, but he was showing us the pattern for our lives. So he goes on to say, as Jesus poured out his life, I will pour out my life gladly for you. And by implication, I want you to pour out your lives for each other. What does this passage have to do with us? Well, in a word... Everything, because we too are bent toward selfishness and self-centeredness and we are quick to claim our rights and to sense our own entitlements. And for people like us, it's good to know that Jesus Christ shows us the way to serve and to sacrifice. And Paul is confident. He says, I'm being poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith. And I'm glad and you too should be glad. And he invites them To follow the pattern of Christ as Christ is formed in them. The theological term is sanctification. It means that act of being set apart for God and the transformation that happens within the lives of those who have been set apart for God. In the Old Testament, you'll see God say from time to time, I consecrate you. I sanctify you as my people. And then as quickly he will say, sanctify yourselves for I am drawing near to you. 
In the New Testament, we read about all that Jesus did for us in justification so that he counted us innocent, though we were guilty. And we glorify his name for that. And so we say, I've been justified. I've been saved. But we must not confuse justification with sanctification because justification is already finished. It's complete in Christ. But sanctification is that ongoing work by which God makes you and me like Jesus. And I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for myself and say it would take a lot of work to make somebody like me become like Christ. But God is relentless. He is purposeful. He is ruthless, if I may say. He is intent on making us like Christ so that at the end of the day, it's a finished product. Romans chapter 8 says we are predestined. Those of us who have come to Christ are predestined. He called us and he justified us and he has glorified us and he will conform us to the image of his son. You are going to become like Jesus. And he says this is the way that happens. Sanctification, if I may say, is God's work and our work. You and I don't add a single thing to God's work of justification But he allows us to work with him in that modeling and shaping of our lives to make us like Christ. I want you to see, first of all, that our work, verse 12, is to join God in his work of making us like himself. And it's a sort of um, it's a very important request that he makes of them. And from the very beginning, he is saying to them, um, it is a reasoned and reasonable request. That word, therefore, is powerful because what he's saying is since Jesus poured out his life for you. You should pour out your lives for each other. It makes sense, he says, that you would work out the implications. Not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because God has done so much for you. As one radio preacher years ago when I was a teenager leaving my job at McDonald's one night said on the radio in Great Falls, Montana, I don't want to grieve the Lord. He's been too good to me. And Paul says, out of gratitude for God's grace, don't you want to become like Jesus? Don't you want to grow in relationship with him? This is God's great work in your life. And you get to join him in that work. And so he says, my dear friends. So it's a relational request as well. That word, my dear friends, probably doesn't capture the strength of what Paul is saying. The word in Greek is agape toy. My beloved, the ones I love with an unconditional sacrificial love. I'm pouring my life out for you, he says. And I love you and you love me. And in relationship with me, you've always obeyed, he says, when I was there. But now I'm not there. But verse 13, he says, for it is God who's working in you. God is there. Even when nobody else is looking, God's looking. God is there. So out of reverence for him, this God who is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, a consuming fire. Why not purify yourself as God is pure? Why not um, be perfect? Matthew 5, 48, as as your father in heaven is perfect. It's a lofty goal. I understand. But the good news is we've got help in this. God is working in us, he says. But that doesn't take away from our need to work. It's a relational It's a relational request. It's an invitation to sanctification built upon our relationships with each other. Because if sanctification happens, if you and I are going to become like Jesus, it will happen in community or it will not happen at all. And you can talk about going off to the desert and learning about humility. But there's nothing like living with other people that will teach you humility. 
It's when we live in relationship with each other. In fact, I, I heard about a Baptist preacher, a young preacher, lots of zeal, moved up to Pennsylvania, Amish country. He, uh, he encountered a, an Amish farmer and he said to him, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior? Are, are you saved? And the man thought for a moment and pulled out a piece of paper and a pencil and he began to write down on a piece of paper some names. And then he handed it to the young preacher and he said, this is the name of my banker, my grocer, and my laborers on my farm. I want you to ask them whether or not I am saved. Now, I want you to know, I believe we can know whether or not we're saved. I'm going to talk about that in two weeks. But here's what I want you to hear. If we really know Jesus Christ, somebody else is going to know that we know Jesus Christ. They will see it in our lives. I wonder who you would put on that list. Would, you, would your neighbors, for instance, know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Would your family members, would your co-workers, I don't mean to meddle the people who drive with you on I-10 and the Beltway, would they, for instance, know, not just by the fish on the back of your car, but by the way that you treat them, would they know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? It's relational, it's living in community. And he says, there's responsibility on our part. So he says, work out, work out the implications, not work for your salvation. Of course we can't do that. But because we're saved, what does that look like for God to make us like Christ? Well, we have responsibility. One man decided that his yard that was the worst in the neighborhood would, would have to be the best yard in the neighborhood. So he hired a consultant. He brought in this lady and he said, I will spare no expense. I want sprinkler systems. I want technology. The most beautiful, low maintenance bushes and grass. I want it to be perfect. So every day when I come home from a hard day's work, I just want to look out the front window and see the beautiful garden. And she was honest with him. She said, let's get one thing straight at the first. If there is no gardener, there is no garden. <laughs> You're not going to have a garden if nobody is tending the garden. And so you're going to have to put forth some effort. And I believe that once God saves us and he plants, he does this, as Paul says to the Philippians, he begins this beautiful work in us. Then he says, now work it out. Go ahead and take responsibility for your actions and your attitudes and your words and grow up in Christ and become all that he wants you to be. And if you need motivation and incentive, he says, do it with fear and trembling, for it is God. You live in the presence of God. This may be discouraging to us when we say, you know, oh, it's what I've always heard then. You just have to try a little harder. That's not what I mean. I don't mean if you just try a little harder, you can live like a Christian if you're not a Christian. But I mean, if you are a Christian, and you join with God. You synergize with God. His purpose, it says in verse 13, is to so energize you. That's the word. To so work in our lives that we want what He wants. And we do what He tells us to do. So He gives us both the will and the ability to act according to His good purpose. And just start there and see that God's purpose for our lives is good. God's not trying to harm us. What God wants for us is better than what we want for ourselves we can trust that. I've been reading in the Psalms recently. Psalms 105 to 107 all say, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. God is, is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And we can trust him to work in our lives. And what is that work he's doing? He's changing what we want so that we want what God wants. And that's a good thing. When you and I want what God wants, you see it in Jesus when he, he teaches his disciples to pray. And what does he say? He says, this is how to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As we sang it this morning, you know, you can never pray. Alan Redpath said, you can never pray, God, your kingdom come, unless you're willing to pray first. My kingdom go. 
I can't have my king. I can't be king if God is king. That's too many kings. There's only one king. And for his kingdom to come, then his will has to be done. And Jesus teaches us that so that we will put that into practice in our lives. So we will want what he wants. And you, you especially see it when Jesus is not there sitting on a beautiful day like today beside the sea teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. But rather, it was in that agonizing moment when he found himself there in the Garden of Gethsemane, bowing beneath olive trees that are still there to this day, thousands of years old. And there Jesus knelt. And he, he, he sweat great drops of sweat, like drops of blood. And there he said in Matthew 26, verse 39, Not my will, but your will be done. It's easy to talk about it in a sort of perfunctory rote memory prayer. But when we come to that critical moment, that crisis of faith in our lives, when we either have to go God's way or our way, which way do we choose to go? C.S. Lewis was right. There are only two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, your will be done. And there are those to whom God says, sadly, okay then, have it your way. That's not the way God wants us to live our lives. He wants us to want what He wants. And if we knew what God knows, we would want what God wants every time. If we could see what God sees, we would want what God wants. And then He says, once we want what God wants, then we can begin to do what God wants us to do. We act according to His good purpose. God has good intentions for us and we begin to act according to that. And what does that look like in our lives, for instance? Well, well, it looks like, He says in in verse 14, that we do everything without complaining or arguing. And you say, wait a minute, now, now we're doing good works. You mean we're supposed to do good things. Exactly. That's what I'm saying to you. It goes back even to one of our favorite passages about salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, so nobody can brag about it. God did the whole thing beginning to end. That's the same thing he's saying in verse 13. It's all God's work. But then listen to what he says in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. For we are God's workmanship, His poema, His masterpiece. We are created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. So what do those good works look like? He says, well, for instance, you wouldn't be a person who complains and argues. You wouldn't be that kind of person. And I don't know about you, but this is a challenge for somebody like me. I remember the words of J.B. Priestley who said, "I I have the perfect look for a complainer. I have the heavy cheeks, I have a, a heavy lower lip, I have a rumbling, resonant voice, and I can just complain with the best of Money couldn't buy an outfit to make a complainer look as good as I look when I complain. I think of Eddie Sutton, the basketball coach, and the way he scowls the whole game. And his son, Sean Sutton, you know, it's sort of genetic. He, he scowls as well, doesn't he? And, and you contrast that with verses 16 and 17 where he says, I rejoice as I pour out my life for you. I want you to rejoice with me. The joy of the Lord is your strength. God doesn't want us to be people who are always complaining and grumbling. You know, the Greek word there is gongusamos. It's onomatopoeic. It sounds like grumbling. If you just say it out loud, enough people in a room, uh, enough times, gongusamos, gongusamos. It sounds like, like the children of Israel in the wilderness saying, we're tired of manna, we're tired of manna. And we can be complainers. It, it's within our, our nature I read about one man who entered a monastery and he took a vow of silence for 10 years. And after 10 years, he got to say two words. If you didn't say anything for 10 years, what would you say with your two words? He said, food, bad. And his his superior said, okay, well, thank you for that. And 10 more years pass and he comes back and, and he says, do you have anything to say? And he says, bed, hard. And he says, okay. And 10 more years pass. Now he's been there 30 years. He comes back to say his two words. You know what his words were? I quit. 
And his superior says to him, it doesn't surprise me. You've done nothing but complain the whole time you've been here. Well, we don't want to be complainers, but we want to be those people who live with the joy of the Lord, who, like Jesus, who, who didn't, remember Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, he didn't open his mouth when they were crucifying him. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the shame of the cross, and we are becoming like him, living sacrifices, not crawling off the altar, but staying in there and letting God continue to perfect us in this life. And no, I don't believe that you and I are perfect in this life and that we ultimately stop sinning in this life. But that is the goal, after all. My theology is not Romans chapter 7. Oh, the things I want to do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. That's not the normative theology of a believer. That's a step on the journey. And there is, after all, a Romans chapter 8 that says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? The law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And if He, verse 13, who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, how then shall you live? Count yourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is sanctification. So we become, He says, pure and blameless as, as Christ is pure, we want to be pure. Listen to this. It's in 1 John uh, chapter 3. He, he's, he says, look at the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. It's the same thing he says in these verses. You'll become pure and blameless, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. And John goes on to say, he says, God's lavished this love on us and we're the children of God. And he says, it does not yet appear. This is one of my favorite verses. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this, that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And then in verse 3 he says, And everybody who has this hope purifies himself, even as Jesus is pure. If you're looking forward to that day when Jesus Christ comes, don't you want to be living right when he gets here? Don't you want to be doing what he's called you to do? Singing songs of praise to him, worshiping him with the people of God, studying his word, living in community, being active in social justice, caring for the poor, the last, the lost, and the least, the way that Jesus did. Don't you want to be working for the kingdom when he comes? He says, you want to be pure and blameless children of God. That means God changes you so that you're not complaining and fighting and quarreling. You know, I sort of come to the place in my life, I, I grew up in a sort of rumbling family you know I never had to say to the kids in the neighborhood my dad can beat up your dad because in most cases my dad already had beaten up their dads it's just the truth and I grew up with big brothers you know and they were always fighting and we were fighting and I'd walk by and one of my brothers would say something and my dad would say you know what you're going to take that from him no we just you know we'd start fighting my mom would come in and say what's going on my dad say what's wrong with you boys stop fighting and that's the family I grew up in and I've come to the place in my life when I don't want to fight I don't want to fight anybody over anything I don't want to fight in conventions I don't want to fight Baptists. I don't want to fight over universities. I just don't want to fight. I'm not interested in fighting because I don't believe God has called us to be a contentious, grumbling, complaining, arguing people. If we are bent on having our rights and we feel entitled, we are not living as the Christ lived who, who, who gave up his entitlement and who was willing to serve other people at great cost to himself. And it's not just that he did that for us. He wants us to do that for each other so that we become like him. I heard Mark Attic speak this week and, you know, he's this new orthopedic surgeon down in Memorial Hermann, down in the medical center. And he's, he's got one of the best orthopedic surgery clinics in the country now. Uh, he, he trained at Harvard Medical School and he trained under one of the best orthopedic surgeons out in Colorado. And I mean, he is building an incredible place. I mean, it's great to be in Houston, have this great medicine, these great hospitals and these great doctors. And, and as he was describing it to us, he said, you know, he said, all I want to do is fix things that are broken. I want to help people with broken bones. 
bones or, or, or damaged knees or hips. And I want to fix those things. That's what I want to do. And I thought, that is really ironic because when I remember Mark Addicts back when I was in college, he was breaking people's bones. I mean, he was a football player, an all-American offensive lineman, and he would just run right over people. I mean, he was nice about it. He'd pick them up after he ran over them, but he'd run right over them. He spent, he spent 11 years in the NFL breaking people's bones. And now he says, all I want to do is fix people's bones. See, I think that's like the work that Christ is doing in us. Maybe we used to speak slander, but now we speak the truth in love. Maybe we used to steal, but now we work with our hands so that we can give away to other people. That's the transformation that Christ is working in our lives. And people will see that transformation. One young woman said she wanted to join the church. And, and this was a church that was very stringent in its membership requirements. They said, well, have you accepted Christ? She said, yes, I have. They said, well, did you know you were a sinner when you did? She said, yes, I was a sinner. Well, wh- what about now? She said, well, I sort of feel like I'm a worse sinner than ever. And they said, well, how can that be? What change has worked in your life? She said, well, let me put it this way. Before I became a Christian, I knew about sin and I ran after sin. And now that I'm a Christian, it seems like I see sin more clearly than I've ever seen it before. But instead of running after it, I run away from it. And they said, you're welcome in our church. And over the years, her life proved that she was a follower of Christ. And you can receive Christ as your Savior and follow Him in baptism. But the faith that saves, James says in chapter 2, is a faith that will work. So you won't see somebody in need and say, good luck with that. Instead, you'll do something to help them. Because those who are followers of Christ are not content to say, I hope that goes well with you. Be warm, be well fed when people are cold and hungry. But instead, you'll work not to get saved, but because you are saved. God is transforming us. He's recreating us. He's making us new. It's like Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife, uh, said she wanted inscribed on her tombstone. She saw this road construction sign one day, and this is what it said. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. I want that on my tombstone. Lord, it, it takes a lot of work to make me like Christ. Thank you all for your patience. But God, don't stop working that good work that you've begun in us until you complete it. As the, as the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins put it, I say more. The just man justices keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ. For Christ plays like an actor in a play. Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs. Lovely in eyes, not his. To the Father through the features of men's faces. Is that what Paul means when he says you are like stars shining in the universe? You, you're not those people who wring your hands and say, what's the world come to? You're the ones who are looking and saying, look who has come to the world. Jesus Christ has come and reflecting his light into the world. You're holding forth the living word. You're not frustrated saying, well, the world's just the way it is. You're trying to change the world. Why? Because Christ is changing us. And may God sanctify every one of us completely. As we follow Christ, will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this privilege of worship. Please don't stop working in my life until you make me like your son, Jesus Christ. There are days, Lord, when I feel like it is so, so far. But I pray even on those days, God, that you would continue to give me the want to and the ability to act according to your good purpose. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.